touchdown and its continuing mission, which he had just pointedly denigrated, but that enthusiasm, which so many supporters had hoped would renew support for the space program, had proven to be short-lived with yet another oil crisis pushing the price of the precious black gold up over $150 a barrel, the threat of yet another war in the Middle East, and all the other issues that had plagued and continued to plague humanity. It was an inside joke that if only NASA could figure out how to use corn and milk to fuel its spacecraft, they'd have Proxley's vote, as he was from a Midwestern state that did not have a single NASA facility and thus could target it with impunity. Gary's wife caught his gaze, took a deep breath, and nodded for him to go ahead. Senator Proxley, Gary looked down at his notepad and fumbled for a moment. He had never been much of a public speaker, except when debating with the inner circle of teammates at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. In that environment, he could hold forth for hours on this special project that he and his wife had worked on for over two decades, scraping by each year on a minimal budget buried inside another budget for advanced research and development. Their dream was a space tower, or elevator, that would reach from the equator to geosynchronous orbit, 23,000 miles above the Earth. At first glance, it did indeed seem like a mad scheme, but the science was there to prove it had long ago migrated from the realm of science fiction to that of scientific possibility, in the same way that other dreams, to reach the moon, to cross the Atlantic by plane, even to just fly or move a ship without oars or sails, had long ago started out as dreams. However, this year Proxley had singled out their particular dream for this one-hour grilling, bestowing on it his infamous Golden Fleece Award, which he announced each month as some example of absurd government extravagance, usually money spent on building projects like bridges to nowhere or museums for teapots or why some people are left-handed. And at least a couple times a year he aimed his sarcasm at NASA. Thus, the absolute shock of several weeks earlier, when one of the top administrators at Goddard called them into her office and, with genuine sympathy, informed them that their budget would be zeroed at the end of the fiscal year, which is to say, at the end of the month, and then handed them notice that they were to appear before a Senate hearing on the subject of NASA's budget. The subtext, for the good of the service, they could defend their program, but there was no chance it would be defended by anyone higher up the food chain. It was heartbreaking, but both Gary and Yevgenia understood. They were loyal to NASA, which had quietly nursed along their dream, had even helped to arrange some grants nearly a decade ago to test possible propulsion systems for tower climbers. But in the larger struggle to stay alive, they would have to be let go. There were even some tears as Yevgenia and the administrator— old friends with daughters the same age and attending the same high school, chatted over tea after the hard news had been delivered. Gary paused, looking at Proxley. He was the classic example of the bureaucrat, forever the opponent of the inventor. One was an idealist, a believer, a doer of dreams, transforming them into realities that could change a world. The other was a naysayer, holder of the public purse strings, 
forever drawing them tighter unless the loosening of them could directly benefit him. NASA, of course, had no professional lobbyist whispering into Proxley's ear, with fat campaign contributions promised for the right kind of vote. The great industrial powerhouses that first made America the aviation innovator of the world, then the preeminent explorer of space, those once enterprising firms were barely hanging on in these economic times, and in turn had to devote their efforts to more immediately profitable and less ambitious projects. For them, the prospect of a space tower was not on the table. Gary knew they should just fold their cards, yield the rest of the time allotted to their reply, and leave. But he could not let it go. After twenty years of effort, he felt they had the right to make a final statement. Gary shuffled his papers, nervously brushed back the strands of slightly graying hair from his forehead, then looked straight at Senator Proxley. As he gazed at this man, he...